Welcome to Shorewords, the ASPN podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. I'm Leslie Ewing, the host of Shorewords, and in each episode, I talk with authors about their coastal writing or with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. Today, it's my great pleasure to be talking with Kirk Lombard about his books and his writing. But first, I'll pause for information from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, Our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Kirk, your book is amazing. I, I found it by chance. I was up in Humboldt area, Humboldt, California, and saw it on the win- in the window at a bookstore. And I thought, got to go in and investigate that book. And it is a treasure. The whole, the Sea Forager's Guide to the Northern California Coast is amazing. And thank it you. really- Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for writing it. It seems though it's it's far more than just Northern California. There's a whole lot about sea foraging that works lots and lots of places, and it's also more than a guide. So what what got you thinking about writing this book? How did it? What's its origin story? Well, it's kind of a long one, but um, so. Yeah, I don't know how far to back up, but I'll just say that uh, I had a um, I had a blog I did for a while, and um, actually before that, back in the days of zines, do you remember zines? Everybody, everybody oh, had yeah. a zine. <laughs> well, I was one of those people, and um, and I was doing a lot of fishing then, and uh, and so I did this zine that was sort of about my misadventures. On the low seas, I used to say, not the high seas. Um, and the main quarry that I pursued in those days was the monkey face prickleback. And so I started this thing called the monkey face news. Um, the monkey face prickleback, that's the actual species name. The Latin is Sebedictes violesius. And Sebedictes meaning of or pertaining to the uh, New World monkeys. I guess the biologists who first saw it uh, thought that the the forward-facing eyes of the monkey-faced prickleback looked like the eyes of a uh, of a monkey. So uh, so that's how it got the name. But in any case, um, I started writing about my misadventures, and I thought it'd be really cool to make. So I used to make the covers of my 
of my little zine that I produced. I used to make the covers out of um, tanned uh, eel skin, tanned prickleback hides, which I um, I was living in a mission at the time, so I had to dry and do all my sort of weird preserving of the skin on the roof of my building, which was very weird. And then um, and then I would dry them. I had a special rack set up on the top of my VW Bug, just in case anybody thought that, um, you know, you're dealing with a mainstream type of person here. I, I used to dry the, the skins of my eels on, the, on a specially made rack that I, that I built for the top of my VW Bug. I had a 68 Beetle. But um, anyway, so I made all the covers of the zine, the Monkey Face News. Um, out of the skins of eel, and then on the inside, I would do, I would mess around. It was all very humorous. It was about um, misadventures pursuing eels. We call them eels. They're not really eels. They're pricklebacks, but uh, we call them eels anyway. Um, but uh, you know, my my cabazon hunting things, and then I I spent a lot of times time just observing tide pools and sort of writing my reflections, and that was all captured in this very eccentric. Um, little magazine. And I'm a musician too. So I recorded a whole album's worth of sea shanties, which came with the original edition of the monkey face news, which is ridiculous. It was ridiculous. I mean, you think about the hours that it took for me to make one of these things. <laughs> it's like I produced a total of about 80 of them. And I, and you know, when I wonder what I did with all those years, that's basically what I was doing. <laughs> I was like, making these crazy books. Um, anyway, I've, somebody told me that, in fact, the writing in it was very entertaining, not just the, the skinned eels and the weird music. And so um, I started this thing called blogging, which was, I, God, this is like 2000, 2001, something like that. I started a blog, and in it... Um, you know, it was called the Monkey Face News, and I would I would post all my weird fishing misadventures there. And um, I had a very crazy um, following, and one of the people that followed my blog posts was um, a woman named Lindsay Bear, who is formerly of Heyday uh, Publishers, uh, Heyday Books in in uh, in Berkeley. She was an editor there at the time, and about two or three years after I, I quit blogging, um, I got a, a call from Lindsay, and she said, why don't you write a book, because I think it would be really entertaining. And um, I had actually thought about it and had started a few chapters, oddly enough, so I, I was kind of ready to roll when she called me and, and made that request, but it, it just kind of came out of the blue, and so I, I did it. Um, her, her. At first, I actually didn't want to do it, but um, you know, I didn't want to go full bore like she wanted. I wanted to write a few poems about eels and the usual stuff, but she wanted a more complete uh, book, and I had reservations about doing that. But then she countered by saying, "You know, somebody's going to write this book, and I think it ought to be you." <laughs> so I was the one. Yeah, it's it's hard to argue with that sort of logic when people present it to you. Although I can understand also saying oh, a book, it's just 
it may be in me someday, but I just can't see doing it now. I just don't know if I have enough to put together in a book. I don't have the discipline to do it. I don't have the time to do it. All sorts of reasons to not not sit down and write a book. But yours tends to be an, an eclectic compilation of so many different things, of stories, as you said, of recipes, of really useful uh, foraging guides. This is where to go. This is what to do. This is how to do it. This is the equipment to use for it. And then your illustrations. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so the, those illustrations are all from my old buddy, um, Leighton Kelly, who's an artist living in Oakland. And um, Leighton and I have collaborated um, quite a bit over the years. Um, I had a band back in the day, and Leighton used to do all the cover art for our band. And um, yeah, so like uh, it was really cool that Heyday was open to uh, letting me go with the personnel that I uh, I preferred. You know, they were open to that. And then he just blew them away, I think, with a lot of these illustrations. And um, and so it's just when I open it up, it just makes me really happy to uh, every time I see Leighton's name there and his artwork in the book, I just feel so proud of it, you know. And it's it sort of reminded me a little bit about bet- between Pacific tides. I know, and that's so it's so weird. That's totally yeah. weird. Because um of course the you know, your your listenership probably knows all about that book. Um by uh Doc Ricketts. Most do, yeah. Of Steinbeck fame. But when um when I first approached Leighton with the idea of doing the artwork, I had said to him, you know, the thing that I really I, I, I'm totally honest here. I, I did not know how this story was going to turn out, but I, I said, Hey, you know, I have a, I have an original printing of between Pacific tides. I, I described this to Leighton and he just sat there without saying anything. We were talking on the phone and I said, you know, I, I would like the, the cover and just the overall feeling of the book to kind of be reminiscent of between Pacific tides. Not that I'm writing a scientific tome like Ed Ricketts, but I just want a little nod, you know, because we're talking about the tide pools of California. Um, and I finished my pitch to Leighton, and he just he just started laughing. And he said, you know, I I just thought that you knew that my grandfather did all of the artwork for P- Between Pacific Tides. He was buddy-buddy with Ricketts and Steinbeck. And all the other guys, and uh, and then at the end of the book, I I let Leighton, uh, we let Leighton have a whole two pages to tell that story about um, about his grandfather and the amazing community of artists and poets and weirdos and scientists that were all gathered around Monterey Bay in the in that at that time. So uh, yeah, so it was just totally crazy because. That was kind of the aesthetic that I was hoping for. And it turned out that Leighton was the grandson of the person that did all of the artwork in that book. And I did not know that. And and I was sort of thinking throughout going through the while I was going through the book that, you know, sort of Pacific Tides-ish, between Pacific Tides, and then to get to the back and read that Leighton was involved with that through his through his grandfather. 
and had that tie was very, very interesting. I think you could have given him more than two pages, though. I think his story <laughs> probably has a lot more in it than than you gave him space for. But his his line drawing is amazing. He had about nine pages, but I edited it down to those two. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Maybe it needed to be edited. We never know, but... Uh, it, it is incredibly illustrated, and it does have that wonderful reminiscence of the way guides used to be before it got all the color prints and color imagery and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I also find it interesting that it's you use the term guide very liberally with, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In order for this thing, in order to actually sit down and write this, without it just really being a, a drag. It had to be fun for me. And um, the only way that it could be fun was, you know, if it was actually a reflection of my thoughts rather than like, here's another guidebook so you can go out and murder the creatures of the coast. Um, it was funny because when you were introducing me, you, you let slip, you said, um, this kind of shows you the how and the why and the what and the where, but I'm really, really sensitive about the where. Um, I don't, you know, like I'm, I don't burn spots. There's a couple of exceptions to that where it's like something, a mud flat back somewhere where I don't think a whole lot of people are going to go or a, um, a species that I don't think, you know, uh, you know, hook and line fishing for anchovies off of pier seven. I don't think you're going to put a dent in the population. So I do mention these sorts of things, but on, on the whole, I'm pretty, uh, pretty conservative about letting loose the, uh, the locations. And I, I'm very happy with that and have received very few complaints over the, in fact, none, <laughs> if you must know, um, most of the, the feedback that I've gotten from fishermen and, and people just getting into it has is, is been very, very positive. Well, it's you're right that it's not where in in the idea of you go to this you know trailhead and you walk down this way and then take the third the third bend. It's not that type of guide, but you do talk about you know sort of these these are surf fishing type of um, species. You you go for these along the rocky shorelines. There's some great places and. Oh, bay areas where you can find these, like the herring um, spawning areas, and different different types of environments where they're more prevalent than um, than others. So yeah, it's not it's it's not a block by block sort of directional idea of where. And I think that's why it also is relevant to areas beyond Northern California because that where is is somewhat ubiquitous around the coast, maybe not for every species, but you're going to start finding different things in the same general areas, I would say. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good up the West coast of, um, of the U S and then there are some transitions into different species as you go further North and South. So there's just a lot, there's just a lot more as you, I mean, we just got back from Alaska and it's, you know, it's just, it's, it's different. <laughs> the things that you're going to get from shore up there is different from what we have down here. And um, 
but yeah, I mean, it, it works for the for the West Coast. Um, I would say from Point Conception uh, through Washington. Uh, there are there are a few things that I put in there that we don't have a lot of, um, but uh, I did it anyway <laughs> because I I liked writing about those species. But yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think if I if I redid it, if we did like a second printing, I would change a few things, add a few species, and it wouldn't be that hard to make it uh, West Coast comprehensive. Yeah. Okay. Well. I I am not a fisher by by avocation. I had a couple of fishing experiences when I was younger. My my father's best friend for years was someone named Uncle Sam. Uncle in that um, close family friend rather than by bloodline. And Uncle Sam loved to go fishing. And whenever he'd come and visit my my parents. He and I would get up early in the morning and I'd go out in the rowboat and I'd row and then we'd fish and we'd take turns with the fishing line. <clears throat> Usually catch some sunnies or perch and, you know, small little fish and bring them back and fry them up for breakfast. And that was my entire fishing career. But I felt like reading your book, I could, I could probably go out and find something to do in the water again. But Yeah, you could poke pole, no doubt. Yeah. If you can catch bluegills and perch, you know, handling a uh, a bamboo stick with a wire hanger on the end is is going to be easy for you. Okay. <laughs> and we did go crabbing a lot because it was the eastern shore of Maryland. It was a different type of crab, and I'm not going to put my hand into crevices and try and get them the way your one of your buddies did. Yeah, that's uh, that guy was uh, really uh, adventurous. Let's see, and. Um, wasn't concerned about the well-being of his hands, but yes, um, you can get them that way. Oaky noodling for uh, for rock crabs, dangerous, dangerous business, but it can be done. I've seen it. Yeah. So um, I liked your story about your first adventure or misadventure with diving for abalone when you were, I guess, you called yourself a pencil popper. Um, yeah, that's a you- type of lure. <laughs> okay. Have you been out there again? Have you been out doing ab diving since then? Um, I went a couple times just shore picking, and um, that that's all I really ever want to do. But it's it's been closed for years. I mean, uh, abalone is, has been shut down. I don't know. I, I think Fish and Game released a um, an opening date, and I've heard the abalones have come back really strong in some areas. Um, I haven't really been following it, but... Uh, yeah, so it's just been closed. And I, 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 man, I just, after that experience, I just have no interest of, in ever diving in Northern California. I know a lot of people do it, and I'm, I'm totally down with, with that and go for it. I just, um, I have, one of my best friends is a shark attack survivor. And um, I know all the stories of how long it took him to, um, I mean, I, you know, to get <laughs> to recover, he, yeah. he still hasn't recovered, you know, and this happened when back in the early, in the late eighties. So, um, I just, I don't need that. You know, I've, I've killed enough fish in my life that I don't need to be swimming around in the water, tempting one of the big ones to get some revenge on me. I just, uh, I, I'm nervous. I just, I'm nervous when I'm, when I'm deep in the water. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> anything anything over eight yeah. feet and forget it, man. I just no. I, I either want to be on a boat, a kayak, or just in a tide pool. And you know, short picking, I've had success over the years, so you know, uh, hopefully that'll open up again and we and we can go. Uh, but again, I'm not sure when the opening date was. I'm sure one of your listeners probably knows and they can write in comments or something, but um, it's been closed for, for a number of years now. Well, we can check on that. But along those lines, where where do you most like to be when you're foraging? Out on the water in a kayak, on the shoreline, on a pier? Where's your, where's your favorite spot to work from? Well, I mean, um, I am sort of uh, obsessed with the intertidal zone. So I like rocky tide pool shorelines. And, um, you know, in those areas I do um, walking tours. You know, I'm also kind of obsessed with mud mud flats too, frankly. I like digging clams. Um, I'm a big fan of the local horse neck clam. And uh, it's kind of funny thing to say, but yeah, uh, there's these big sort of weird, kind of phallic looking giant clams that live in some of the sandy mudflats around the Bay Area. And you can, you can find them. And if you know what to do with them, they're really delicious. And then, um, yeah, so I, you know, it's between the, the rocks and the mud. That's, that's pretty much where I want to be. Um, I still, to this day, do a lot of poke polling for monkey face eels. And every now and then I get a nice big cabazon to make me very happy. And um, yeah, that's kind of, that's still my main thing. And um, another thing that uh, I'm very kind of crazy, I'm, I'm like the last person doing it anymore. Is <laughs> I, And I'm, I'm serious about this because I know, because I did it a lot um, this spring and early summer. I, I was doing a lot of night smelt fishing. And I'm, I'm like one of the last guys in my area that's still doing night smelt. And that's because there's like no night smelt in the last few years. Very few anyway. And I go out at night with the old A-frame dip net and I catch night smelt. So, um, you know, those, those are kind of my main things of late. I sold my boat um, like a year ago. And since then, I, I've just been refocusing myself on um, just fishing from shore, walking the shoreline and, uh, you know, Casting for perch on the beaches, looking for surf smelt, which never show up anymore. Uh, going out at night for night smelt when I can, and uh, poke polling for rockfish, cabazon, and eels. Every now and then, do some clamming, and uh, yeah, that, that, that's uh, those. Those are the things that I occupy myself with, and I do each of those equally. It all depends on tide and whether I have a day off or not. Yeah. So. Where are night smelt similar to grunion? No, the uh, the grunion is um, a silver side, which is related to flying fish, and the night smelt is a true smelt, in osmerid, and more related to things like candlefish, surf smelt, and um, delta smelt, and the rest. So. Um, yeah, two two separate families, um, but night smelt are similar. They have similar behavior to grunion. Grunion um, spawn on certain moon phases um, in the surf, 
And that is exactly what night smelt do, except that night smelt don't sort of wallow around and have sex on the beach the way Grunion do. Um, (laughs) The the night smelt kind of dart in and dart out. And you catch them by means of a thing called an A-frame dip net. With Grunion, the rules are that you, you have to gather Grunion by hand. You're not allowed to use a tool to catch them. Um, and you can do that because they're all over. When you go to a Grunion run, they're just spread out all over the beach. And we have those. People don't know, but we have Grunion in the Bay Area. I just, if you can get night smelt, I just find that night smelt are so much better. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because, for one thing, night smelt are a little smaller and they don't have any scales, or they do have scales, but you don't have to worry about the scales. They're they're deeply embedded and they're soft and you can eat them. But grunion are like jack smelt. You have to scale them in order to make them palatable. At least I do. Um, so when you catch night smelt, you just scoop them out, throw them in the bucket, rinse them off, bring them home, throw them in the fire, fryer and eat them. But with grunion, they're a little bit bigger. You might want to get some of the guts out and you got to scale them all. It takes forever. So once you've become accustomed to night smelt, there's no going back to Grunion. That's my feeling about it. Also, Grunion is from Southern California where they have things like the Los Angeles Dodgers. And if we're from Northern California, we're supposed to reject that. You know, it's like, it's like one of the emblematic species of Southern California. You know, so it's like, screw off. I'm going with night smelt. That's my, that's my local uh, small fish in the surf. All right. Um, I was, I've been a Grunion watcher for a number of years. I had been until the, um, the oil spill in San Francisco Bay a while ago. And that, that ended the Grunion run in the Bay Area, at least in the inner beaches for a number of years. I've heard they are coming back and I haven't gone out to look for them, but I just like watching them come in. And I think it's great to see all these silver bodied fish coming up onto the shore and, and, um, like you say, having some sex on the beach, but um, I have never tried eating them. But I, I am. But that leads into though a lot of your book or a lot of the discussions in your book are about um, species protection, conservation, sustainability, and you you write about forage fish in part because you you don't want people so much going to the top predators. So, well, I don't. I- it's not that I don't want. I think I think you know people can do what they want to do. I you know within reason. I don't. I'm not going to vibe anybody. But it's um, I I offer that if what you're interested in in fish, a lot of people are eating seafood and eating fish because of its health benefits. And if that's your primary thing, um, and you want to have less of an impact, it's probably in some cases, in most cases, even. It's probably better to feed lower on the food chain and to target species that have evolved in order to withstand high amounts of predation. Because, so for instance, an anchovy, pretty much everything that's, um, every piscivorous animal on the planet wants to eat an anchovy. So anchovies, you know, it's a, the old difference between K-selected and R-selected species, where one of those spends a lot of time and energy nursing and nurturing one or two offspring um, to, to, to reach adulthood. And then other species carpet bomb the whole area and go with 
you know, thousands and thousands in their spawning events. And those are the, those are the types of species that um, are probably a really good idea for us to eat more of because they, they're naturally adapted to withstanding large amounts of predation. And that doesn't mean that they're invulnerable to it. So, like, you can totally over-harvest all those creatures. But, but you know, one person going out with, a you know, three hooks on a line and jigging up some anchovies or mackerel or sardines, um, it, that's not putting a dent on anything. That's not industrial type of fishing. That's like you're going out and getting your dinner. More power to you. And you can do that in the Bay Area because we have all of these species. So, like, a lot of, a lot of people in the Bay Area don't even know, you know, like, it's just... They, they look at the bay and they think that it's just this sort of, it's really funny. I, as I'm talking to you, I realize that I've, I've hooked my, myself. My socks are completely hooked in a sabiki. A sabiki is a bait fish rig with tons of little hooks on it. And I inadvertently snagged myself. And both of my feet are right now caught up in a sabiki, which is. Um, <laughs> I guess they get more than bait fish, huh? They get big critters as well. They got my freaking socks. I'm pulling hooks out of my socks while I'm talking to you. So anyway, um, yeah, this is this is the the curse of the bait fisherman. If you're a bait fisherman, you got to use these things called sabikis. They're these little uh, these little rigs that have little tiny hooks with shiny things on them, and you drop it in the water and you just flick it, and it attracts things like. Top smelt, jack smelt, um, anchovies, sardines, mackerel, they, they all like to bite on this. But anyway, my point is, in the Bay Area, we have all of these fish. Like, you name a small, silvery, midwater schooling fish, um, and we have it. We have anchovies. We have occasionally mackerel come through the Bay. That really happened four years ago where it was crazy. Um, we have uh, sardines. A lot of, lot of medium-sized sardines this year in the bay, which you're allowed to catch. Um, and we, uh, like I said, anchovies, uh, two different types of silver tides, jack smelt, top smelt. We have um, kingfish. We have all of these things. Um, and there's not a lot of countries that have all of them and also have herring. And we have Pacific herring in the winter. And that's one of those things that, you know, I, I wish... People, even if you're not interested in fishing, people should go out and observe a herring run in San Francisco Bay in the wintertime because the, the bird life, the, the marine predator life that abounds in the bay during a herring run is really something to behold. And, and you know, a lot, most people, you know, I, I, the reason I, I say most people is because I do these walking tours where I take people out and we talk about the ecosystem and, you know, I take out, I've, I've done groups with school kids and all, all different people from different walks of life, private tours, everything. And very few of the people who come out and do walking tours with me um, are aware of the fact that we have herring in the Bay. And uh, it's just kind of mind boggling to me because the biomass of herring in the Bay is gigantic in the wintertime. And they actually spawn right along the shoreline where, where large, groups of people tend to gather. So like along the Embarcadero shoreline, um, behind, you know, Pac Bell Park, um, in uh, Richmond, uh, Point Richmond, uh, 
Tiburon, all these, all these areas around the Bay were, you know, fairly densely populated areas. And there's your herring coming into spawn, like thousands, hundreds of thousands of them. You know, it's a, it's an incredible thing. Sorry, I'm rambling. No, but, but it's true because we don't, we don't see through the water that much. We don't look into the water column as much as we do looking on what's at land. We can say, oh my gosh, we've had an invasion of crows this year, but we don't see what the invasions are on the water side. It's, it's, it's the views that we take of the area in which we live. No, you're letting people off too easily. You're letting them oh, off I'm- too easily. <laughs> No, I mean, like, look, I, here, I, I, I'll never forget. I did a tour where we, I was just walking along Embarcadero, and I had this whole group of people. And it, and it was a busy day, and there, there must have been a 1,000 people in the two blocks that we walked down. And pelicans are diving out of the sky. There's actually harbor porpoises inside the bay chasing the herring around. There's cormorants everywhere. All you have to do is take two seconds and look at the water. It's not like you have to have a submarine and go under to see the herring. You can see what's going on. The, the, the surface is just boiling and there's fish, fish leaping out of the water and, 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 and spawning along the rocks. You can actually see them wiggling their bodies along the rocks as they spawn and pelicans diving out of the sky and cormorants and and, and you'll look at, at, at people you know going about their daily business. They don't even look in the water. Don't even stop and turn around. What is wrong with people? Anyway, sorry. I'm, uh, you know, like I just stand there. I'm like, aren't you like, like, aren't you a little bit interested? You know, like, you know, that this kind of thing is happening right in the city where you live. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm being uh, a little. I think you're pointing out that the drama is there, and that people people who've maybe not paid attention to it yet should be paying more attention and trying to put together why every all these um, birds and other things are going on at the same time. They're congregating different places. I've seen a, uh, I think it was a herring run off the coast of, of um, San Luis Obispo where we had big fish. We had birds. We had all sorts of things going on. And it was just this... Um, cycle of of birds flying around and around in circles with the dolphins and the even just seals pounding into the water and just gorging themselves it was pretty amazing but but see what happens with herring what happens with herring is that they come in and they're looking um well who knows what they're looking for i i I conjecture that they're looking for um eelgrass beds um, in the in a certain area of the city that I'm talking about, they're looking for eel, eelgrass where they can um, lay their eggs. And I think back, you know, if you were to go back 10,000 years ago, that's where they were laying their eggs. But the thing that's so amazing about herring as a species is I think they've adapted because they'll they'll lay their eggs on on the underside of a boat. They'll lay their eggs along the rocky shoreline. They'll lay it in any sort of seaweed or they'll riffraff anything that's it's like in the area that they're carpet bombing. And we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about all, like in the intertidal zone. They are, you can throw a net three feet from shore and catch 20 pounds of herring. They're right there. They're right. They're, they're not even, they're not even offshore where it's like, oh, there's a lot of pelicans. No, they're, they're literally at your feet. And this happens um, every single year as it, and, and, you know, 
you think about all the things we've done to the bay and all of the um, the actual shoreline that's disappeared, right? Like how much of the bay is landfill in San Francisco? And they're still coming in. I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing. Um, there's a commercial herring fishery, which is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been on, on the ropes the last few years because the, the price has gone down so much um, that the guys aren't really making the money to make it worthwhile. But th- every year, a few commercial herring boats still go out, just like they did 100 years ago, and set out the gillnets, catch herring. But unfortunately, most of that herring gets shipped off to Japan. You can find a few, um, a few wholesalers, a few distributors down at the wharf that will, will send them out to sort of specialty restaurants. But um, the demand hasn't been that big. It's, it's picking up. Herring demand is totally, I think it's one of these things that if the right guy came in and, um, and like put energy into it and, you know, talked it up, there, there could be sort of a, a, a blossoming of the, of the herring fishery. In fact, hey, wait a minute, there is a guy. There is a guy who's, it's called the San Francisco Herring Company. It's this dude who works for me. His name is Will. Yeah. He's a crazy. Well, good. He's cr- yeah. He's crazy into herring. He just hasn't, you know, he hasn't got it off the ground yet. It's his. It's all in the plans, in the works. But hopefully, he'll have a few herring this year. Anyway, um, sorry, I didn't mean to ramble. I do that. I do ramble. So, you, if you want to cut me off, I won't take it personally at, at all. <laughs> okay. Well, I. What are your next plans? I mean, Sea Forager is now six years. In, in print, do you have another book in mind? Are you writing more? Are you doing that type of project right now? I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, well, here's the thing. When, when, um, when I wrote the Sea Forager book, I had in the back of my mind this novel, okay? A novel, fiction, that... Um, I wanted to do for many years, and I had actually been working on it slowly over about 10 years. And um, after getting published, I figured, hey, this might be my shot, you know? So um, I kind of put my uh, nose to the grindstone, as it were, and I pumped out a novel. And it took me, I don't know, another five years. Um, And uh, I finally uh, am, am happy to announce that I'm getting that book published. I can't, Excellent. I can't say who is publishing it because I'm in, in talks about it, but it's, it's a novel and it's, um, it's about the life of a hatchery trout. Um, you know, the, it's one of these, uh, these books where the animals speak. So if you're like not an animal speaking type of person, you're not going to want to read this. The animals are talking. And then, um, it takes place in a, uh, fictitious, uh, river, and it's the the travails of a trout, and how it how it came to pass that this trout, a hatchery trout, nonetheless, is um is tasked with saving the river, and uh, it's kind of a tearjerker, but it's also a comedy. Okay, that's, that's as much as you get. But my God, it took fifteen years of my life to write this freaking thing, and um, well, and yeah, yeah, and so um. Yeah, I'm just really excited because, you know, you do, you spend that much time on something and you start thinking, oh, my God, this is never going to get published. 
And then the, the moment comes and, and you're just kind of overwhelmed with happiness. So um, hopefully, hopefully uh, that comes out in the next year or two. And, and then we, I can come back on and I'll, I'll promote it for the filthy, filthy lucre. No, but it's a, it's a really uh, fun story. I think most people will, will, who like fishing and fish will, will be into it. Okay. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that when it's when you found a publisher and through the negotiations no, and it's in print. No, that's it. It's it's we got a publisher. It's, okay. It's on. It's uh it's just yeah, it's gonna be a while. So are there any coastal writers that you emulate or people that you enjoyed reading as you're growing up? Well, yeah. I mean, um I don't I don't think I emulate any of them, but I oh I'm a big fan of Milton Love. Um, Milton Love is the head of the Love Lab um, at University of Santa Barbara, and he's a he's a preeminent groundfish biologist, mm-hmm. and um, and he writes humorously about fish. And his great epic tome is. Um, uh, Certainly more than you want to know about the fishes of the Pacific Coast, a postmodern experience. <laughs> is it fish or fishes? I always get that wrong. Anyway, and then his other book is probably more than you want to know about the fishes of the Pacific Coast, but it doesn't have the postmodern experience um, tag on it. And then he did Rock Fish of the Northeast Pacific and a bunch of other seminal books about um, coastal fish uh, in California along the Pacific coast of North America. So him, another one that I like is Peter Howarth, uh, who wrote Foraging the California Coast. Um, he, Howarth, H-O-W-O-R-T-H. Um, who else? Um, John Steinbeck, of course, grew up reading him and kind of got interested in all in the areas of, um, you know, to, because I got interested in Ed Ricketts because of Steinbeck. And then I, I read B- Between Pacific Tides. And so that had some influence. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I read all those people. I don't think I write particularly like them, but um, I do I do read them and I do really appreciate them all. Yeah. I mean, there's so much... W- amazing stories of the fishing world here and and around the world. But this is the American Shoreline Podcast Network. So as a final question, what is your favorite coastal beach area, shoreline area? (laughs) I'm not going to tell anybody that. But I can tell you something that I like. Okay. Or I can tell you something that I don't like. Pick one of each. So while you're thinking, you actually live in one of my favorite coastal areas. The um, Fitzgerald Marine Lab at Moss Beach is just a, an amazing shoreline, tide pool area. And there's this geologic feature there called either a syncline or anticline. I'm not sure which it is. But that rock exposure at low tide, I just think is incredibly gorgeous. I love going there and just staring at it for a while. Yes, the the sort of weird concentric circles, is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. really cool. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I love that shoreline. That's all close to fishing now. Um, So, you know, I tend to spend more time in areas where I can fish and gather stuff. Um, 
the uh, the Sonoma shoreline is quite beautiful. Um, if you know, I I'm never going to tell everybody my favorite beaches in the area where I live <laughs> because I don't want to see anyone okay. down there. No, but uh, you know, all of the half moon bay beaches are wonderful. I mean, come on. And um, if I had to pick a beach like that, I really love visually, but I never catch anything on this beach. I like, I just, I strike out every time I go there. That would be Monterra beach. Okay. Beautiful beach. I love it. And I know a lot of guys catch stripers down there and they catch perch down there. But me, I'm for me, that beach, I am just cursed. I don't know what my problem is on that beach. So, um, I just, uh, and it's, it's always tempting because I have to pass it on my way to, on my way home. And it's just like, you jump out of the car, run down there, throw the line in the water. I've had a couple of great days there. I'm not going to lie, but on the whole, that beach is just unforgiving for the for the sea forager. I cannot I cannot make it work. However, it is quite beautiful. I would also say um, I love all the Point Reyes beaches and um, that whole ten mile section of beach there, um, Kehoe, all all the ones that you have to walk down to. They're just so, you know, breathtaking, beautiful. Drake's Drake's Beach. I just I love all those Point Reyes beaches, and I love going there and fishing. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that. Those would be my favorites. Um, but there are more down here. But you know, the locals will will um, tar and feather me if they find out that I am uh, giving giving out that sort of information. <laughs> so no, uh, <laughs> but I will say these can be these can be beaches just for their beauty and spectacle. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's great. Yeah, all those beautiful um, point rays. You know, they have in the nature center there at um, at Drake's. They used to have this mural, and the mural um, was kind of a recreation of um, of coastal Miwok approaching um, uh, Drake's ship which is kind of docked at low tide in, in Drake's Bay. And uh, it's so it's such a mesmerizing painting because the artist really captured the cliffs and exactly what that moment in history would have looked like. Um, you know, that sort of tragic, yet um, sort of really deeply interesting moment. Um, and I always think of that painting when I when I go to that beach and I haven't actually been to that beach in about two years. So maybe, maybe this is going to inspire me to go and check it out again. Well, Kirk, thank you so much for talking with me today, talking to me about your book, the Seafair Forager's Guide to the Northern California coast and, and about your views on fishing, all the fish that you have caught over the years, all the great information you've provided in the book. It's wonderful. So thank you very, very much for the audience. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shorewords. And I think this time with Kirk has been both educational and interesting. I hope this encourages you to look at the ocean areas differently. Look for those fish that are under the water. Think about why they're birds congregating on top of the surface and diving down. What are they going for and what might you want to be thinking about for your next foraging adventure? So till the next time, enjoy the coast and your views of the shore. <laughs>